Welcome to Spirited Word. By God's Word proclaimed, the Holy Spirit works faith in God's grace in Jesus, when and where He pleases. Sermons by Pastor Adrian Kitson, Lutheran Church of Australia. Today's word is written in the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to John, beginning at verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, The one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Word of the Lord. So, who is Jesus for me? That's the question that's on all Gospel writers' tongues as they share the story of what they heard and what they saw, what they felt, what they understood. We've been hearing that question for a couple of weeks. I wonder how it's going for you. Who is Jesus for me? Who is he? In the 21st century, who is Jesus for me? That's the question. And John's answered the question many times in different ways. In his unique way, Jesus is more, is his three-word expression. He's more than just a miracle worker or problem fixer or freedom fixer who we need, with whom we need no personal contact and require, we don't require any more deeper understanding of him. He's much more than that. We need more experience and understanding of him. He is grace personified, says John. He is hope revealed. He is love on show. He is deep peace in the heart for the Christian man, the Christian woman. This pivotal chapter, chapter 6, at the beginning of the chapter, John, uh, Jesus is Mr. Personality, a superhero. At the end, half of them leave him. It's a pivotal moment. It it continues and the same questions are given to prod us, to goad us into what the issue really is between you and God. Do I want what he can give me or do I want him? Do I want him shaping my decisions and my relationships and my future and my vocation Or do I just want what he can give me so I can live life the way I choose? Well, the crowd, as you remember, and you've heard a few times now, they 
have had their heart revealed by the prodding questions of Jesus in response to their questions. He's determined, he's like a doctor who's given a a judgment about what the issue is. The people are wanting the saviour, what he can give, but they don't want the saviour. So after Jesus has answered many questions with many more questions, we now finally get to hear about another group that's within the crowd. There's a group within a group. And uh, the dialogue with them will expose a slightly different issue for the modern Christian man and woman. John just calls these people the Jews. Simple name. Other gospel writers, of course, tell us much more than that. Two religious or political parties, religious leaders, religious establishment, Pharisees and Sadducees. I'm sure you know them well. Of course, just like has often been the case in our own Lutheran church history, we might generally be of the same ilk, but it doesn't mean we get on or we agree on everything. The Barossa is a long story of such disagreement, isn't it, in some ways, and the whole LCA. In fact, the whole Lutheran world. Two synods, three synods, four synods now in the US again. Anyway, the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't agree on much, really. The biggest bone of contention between them was whether or not there's an afterlife. And so, so as a result, whether or not there's a resurrection to an afterlife. So the Pharisees Pharisees were more of a people's party, I guess you'd say, a, a political and religious party that maintained that an afterlife is spoken about in the Old Testament law and that God punishes the wicked and rewards the good and the righteous in the world to come. And this is done by keeping the law, keeping Torah, being good. They also believed in a Messiah, that he would come and he would begin a new era of peace with God for those who have kept the law. The Sadducees, on the other hand, well, they wanted to maintain the Jerusalem temple and the priestly sacrifices and the priestly clan, the Levites. At the same time, they were much more open to the surrounding Greek culture. When in Israel in 1993... I was amazed to see in synagogue mosaics on the floor Greek gods in Jewish synagogues. Amazing. So they were very open to the Greek culture around them in their art and in their writing and in their even family lifestyle. However, they rejected the notion that the word of God is interpreted or understood as it's passed on from one to another. The word of God is interpreted and understood as we share it and as we move forward together in a community, etc., etc. Instead, they insisted on the letter of the law, a very literal translation, or I should say understanding, of particularly the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. So if it isn't there directly spoken and clearly stated, it isn't. So... They did not believe there was an afterlife or a resurrection to an afterlife because it's not actually specifically stated, particularly in the first five books, the Pentateuch, in the law, the Torah. So they didn't believe in a resurrection, and the Pharisees did. No, the Sadducees were firmly focused on heaven on earth. 
the Jerusalem temple and the priesthood. So, as Jesus engages with this group within a group, guess what topic he's going to raise? Can you guess what topic he's going to hit them with straight away? Is he going to talk about the football? Is he going to talk about the weather? Is he going to talk about what colour shoes we should all wear? No way, man. He's going to talk about resurrection just to see what happens and to get to the real issue. So, stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And what? I will raise them up on the last day. Ah, Jesus knows the pressure points, doesn't he? And he puts the cat among the pigeons by raising that question. And what he's really trying to do is what he's always trying to do. Who am I to you? Who is Jesus for you, mate? Pharisee, Sadducee. Okay, so on, we have two groups now, don't we? On the one hand, Jesus has already identified the problem that some people have, the crowd. They are not searching for Jesus because they can see and understand who he is as a person, but because they can see what he can give them to make their life free and easy. They want the Saviour. They want what the Saviour can give. They don't want the Saviour. They want a particular thing, signs and wonders. But they don't want the sign, the wonder, the bread of life. The other group, the religious leaders, the group within the group, well, they don't want the Saviour either. They don't want more signs and wonders, but they do want to maintain power and place and possession. In fact, they would like that to increase. And the way they figured out how to get it? Keep the law. Keep the law. 613 of them. Keep Torah. Be very, very good all the time. And demand... Everybody else be the same. At least if you're Jewish. Because if you're not, you haven't got a chance in hell anyway. So, in their concern for being squeaky clean before God and others, and always being good and always being right, they can't allow that God would bring his long-promised new era of life and peace in this very ordinary uneducated so-called teacher who actually is a carpenter from the north because that would mean that God is working outside their prayers and their worship life and their hard work to be very right and to be very good. So we have two groups of people, those who just want Jesus to fix all their problems so they can be free and easy and those who are convinced that the salvation of the world's troubles lies in people being good and keeping the rules. So we have freedom fixers and law keepers. And neither of them, says Jesus, get him. Neither of them have got to the heart of the matter. Whoever Jesus is, he's not a magic man sent to make us all happy and filled with everything we want. On the other hand, he's not here to judge people and condemn them either. Oh, John 3.16 comes to mind. Hmm, 
I have come not to judge the world, but to save the world. So he's not a genie in a bottle to make our life easy and free. And he's not a big judge with a big stick, intent on keeping us all in line. So who the heck is he? And this is a question for you. Who is he for you and me? John's told us in his John way, bread. He's bread. He's a staple diet. He's accessible to everybody. He's bread. He's life. He's what sustains life in God's life. He's the difference between selfish pride and self-seeking pleasure that eventually leads to destruction of everything. Have you thought about that? I have. Endless pleasure-seeking. Just look at the rich and famous and what happens. And on the other hand, rigorous rule-keeping, they both end in destruction. Both of the person, of the environment, and of relationships. Endless pleasure costs everything. And rigid, rigid moralism costs everything as well. Everything is reduced to winning and losing, good and bad, right and wrong. In both, there's no grace and there's no forgiveness. Jesus is the only one through whom any of us can truly experience and receive undeserved love and favour and blessing. He's the only one through whom any of us can experience the grace and love of our creator God so that we are truly forgiven, truly healed and set free and made aware and filled with the fire of God's self-sacrificing love for those around us. Tim Keller, in his book, Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God, sums things up fairly well, as he often does. To know God for who he is, and not just think he's our only some moral policeman or judge, out to punish us, or some impersonal being whose main goal is to make us all happy. To know God for who he is is to know Jesus for who he is. In our natural human state, we pray to God to get things. We therefore pray mainly when our career or finances are in trouble, or when some relationship or social status is in jeopardy. When life is going smoothly and our truest heart treasures seems safe, it doesn't often occur to us to even pray. Also, ordinarily, our prayers are not varied very much. They consist usually of petitions, occasionally some confession of sin if we've done something wrong. Why is this? We know God is there. We tend to see him as a means through which we get things to make us happy. But when we discover by receiving the good news of grace in Jesus Christ on that cross, Saviour, Friend, Redeemer, Lord, Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, all of those beautiful names, that he is with us and for us and truly accepts us when we don't deserve to be, who doesn't come to condemn me but to love me, well, this makes us new. His word penetrates our soul and everything changes. Now we, don't, we just don't want to get what he can give us anymore or even believe life is about being safe and happy and clean and good. Now we experience grace, 
what grace really is. Undeserved love. Undeserved favour from the one who has my life and my death and my resurrection in his hands and his hands alone. The one with authority to condemn me rightly chooses not to and makes me new every day in my baptism. Keller goes on. When we grasp his astonishingly costly sacrifice for us and we transfer our trust and hope from ourselves to him, from needing a magic man to fix our problems or a lawman to keep everybody else good just like us, and simply turn to him as my saviour, my friend, my lord, my king, my life, the bread of my life, the one who sustains my life and the life of the whole world, then we begin to simply want to know him better. So when we seek him, and not just what he can do for us, we will count the cost of following him quite easily. And we'll gladly strive to refrain from things that lead us away from him. And then we will pray for more than just things when we're desperate. We'll just linger a while. We'll just be with him a while. And we might even talk to him a lot throughout the whole day. And then, as John Calvin says in his Institutes of the Christian Life, even if there were no hell at all, no fear of punishment, no hell, none of that, even if that wasn't there, it, that is, a heart that's been renewed by the gospel, a gospelized heart, even then, my heart was still shudder at offending him. Things have gone from duty to delight, from law-keeping to free response. So the question for you and me from this text today, what are you living for? Are you living your life to gain reward? Or are you living your life to avoid punishment? In Jesus, you already have the reward of life now and later to the full. You have the reward of great joy, even today in suffering. As for punishment, for all the sin you could ever muster from your idol-making and chasing heart that we all have still, it's been fully measured out and exacted in the flesh of the Son of God on the cross. It's been put away in the crucifixion, dispatched by mercy in the empty tomb. Now what does that mean for you, friend? What does it actually mean for you? Here's what I thought. Because Jesus is more, you don't need a genie in a bottle to fix all your problems and make you happy so you can live the way you want to live. You don't need that. You do need the healing, peace and forgiveness and love of the bread of life. You do need to be raised up today and at the last. You don't need to be squeaky clean and to try and control everybody else to make them the same as you. You do need his perfect forgiveness 
over and over and over again, given in your baptism, in the word of absolution, and in the Lord's Supper, and many other things. You don't need to try and pray more, or pray harder, or be more spiritual, or be more holy, or be more upright in your own strength. You do need to invest time and space with him, to talk to him the whole day long, and see where he leads, and hear what he says, and live with him. So, crowd, or Pharisee, Sadducee, freedom fixer, or rule maker, whoever we might be this morning, Jesus is more. Amen. And the peace of God, which is beyond all of our understanding, keep our hearts and minds in Christ, the bread of life. Amen. for listening. Pastor Adrian serves at St. Petrie Lutheran Church near Yupper, Barossa Valley, South Australia. stpetrie.org.au